0: You're listening to Supply Chain Radio. My name is Matt Gunn, joined today by Guy Cortan. Guy, how are you? Matt, I'm doing well. How are you doing on this uh, lovely summer Friday? Yeah, it is a beautiful Friday, and it's a great day to uh, head to the ballpark. And so that's what I'm thinking I'll do at the end of the work day.
1: Well, you've got, uh, you know, fortunately for you in the, in the New York metropolitan area, you have a whole bevy of teams you can go see from the Brooklyn Cyclones to uh, that other minor league team, the New York
0: Mets. That's right. And uh one of those two I will be seeing tonight. They are no Yankees, but the Mets have a a dear place in the hearts of New Yorkers. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, as a as a, you know, faithful Boston Red Sox fan, I I have little love for uh, either the Mets or the Yankees. But anyways, I I won't let that impact
0: our podcast. Yeah, right. 1986 still haunts you. I understand. You had to bring it up, didn't you? <laughs> well, it's a different era now. And certainly your team's looking pretty good. But yeah, I go into the Mets game, going to see it with a few friends and taking along a brand new baseball cap, which is something that, well, just goes along with the game. Oh, a new baseball cap. Do tell. I mean, why are you
1: not buying one at the ballpark itself? Isn't that where you would get a baseball cap? (laughs)
0: Usually you do. This one's a little different, though. Made by the menswear brand Todd Snyder, based in New York, and of course, New Era Cap, the official headwear of Major League Baseball, which is all based up in Buffalo, New York. This hat's made out of one of the last rolls of raw denim from the legendary Cone Mills in North Carolina. A cotton mill that was formed in 1896, and then unfortunately closed its doors at the end of last year. But it's a different one. It's not out like your typical baseball hat, and it's got a story behind it too. Cone Mills was really one of the first suppliers to Levi's, and foundational to what we now consider one of the most American articles of clothing, the blue jeans. So... A different kind of hat, but, you know, I loved it. Everything about it, you know, being a baseball cap, having that team logo on it, but also being made out of a, a fabric that tells a story over time and that really you won't be able to find, again, at least not from this particular source.
1: Now, let me ask you this, Matt, because I think it's an interesting point when it comes to sort of this, the history behind the cap itself You obviously are a denim aficionado, as some of us who have listened or who know you recognize. From your standpoint, though, did you buy this hat because not only did it look cool and it had your representative logo on it, but because of the story behind it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the big part of some of the things that I'll buy are just that, the story behind it, how it's made, what fabrics or materials go into it, sort of the workmanship that gets put into it. And I think that's a big part of of really associating myself with a brand or a product is that it has some characteristic that I can identify with or that's unique. And and this is absolutely one of those products that that really is in a couple different ways.
1: So, because that's interesting because I think it's something I know we've talked about on this podcast, right? But we did that study a, a while back with YouGov that really talked about the importance of the traceability of the supply chain how things are produced, are they sustainable? But I think we could also throw in the perspective that you just brought up, which is, hey, people actually want to know the story behind the product, right? People are not just interested in buying a hat for the sake of buying a hat. Maybe they want to understand, you know, where the raw material come from. Is it from this, you know, longstanding denim factory that is now closing shop? Or, you know, was it stitched in the exact same way that they did back in, you know, 1912 when, you know, this hat was worn. I think that's really interesting from a supply chain and supplier standpoint. You know, you mentioned hats and as you know, and as others might know, you know, I'm also a big hat dork and I probably have way too many baseball hats for my own good. But it's interesting. I've noticed more and more like companies like American Needle are producing, you know, sort of retro hats. And in the inside of the hat, They have the year when those were worn and then a little bit of like a little blurb on the history of it. So, you know, I have like uh, a couple of hats from the Pittsburgh Pirates that come from different eras. I have hats from the Cubs and they're all what's what I like about just kind of like what you're saying is it's not just a, you know, sort of a run of the mill Cubs hat you buy at Wrigley Field, which are still great, but this actually has you know, some history behind it. And and this is more in the history of the manufacturing process, not the history of the raw material, like you mentioned. But I think it's it's some interesting threads when it comes to manufacturing, purchasing, retail, and the supply chain.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it goes to just that, like how you buy it or where you buy it from. I mean, if I'm buying a ball cap, like from a baseball team, I'll try to do it at the ballpark, especially when I'm visiting a new one. But exactly like with some retro items or things that are made, differently. You know, the Ebbets Field flannels uh, collection as well, which is a, another set of retros, like it's for the story that it tells or what's behind it. And so, you know, it, it's one of those articles of clothing that it's not a commodity, even though, you know, a lot of people wear a hat, but it has some meaning in a different way. And And a lot of products are like that way. I mean, there's tons of commodities out there. I don't really care about the story about my window cleaner, obviously, and so I'll just <laughs> right. buy what's on sale. <laughs> right. You don't but, understand. You don't want to know how they made it blue instead of green? Yeah, you know, um, maybe one day I'll dive into that. Maybe. <laughs> but kind of back to that. That inherent story of it. I mean, it's so funny when you think about denim, you know, again, uh, jeans are such an American product and Cone Mills and Levi go all the way back to the 1800s, early 1900s. But, you know, the supply chain has changed for so much of the things that we buy. You can still buy Levi's that are made in America with American sourced goods. I guess it'll be much harder now that Cone Mills is closed. And you can buy a lot of, you know, higher-end jeans that are made in the same way. But really, for the mass market, people don't really always care about that. It's a pair of pants. And, you know, whether the cotton is sourced in the States and milled in the U.S. or milled in Turkey, which is another big producer, or Japan, it doesn't necessarily matter to a lot of consumers. Also, you have to consider the price of manufacturing, it has um, spread the supply chain very far afield. Even with this hat that I bought, it's kind of funny. Your typical official MLB hat, fitted the game worn ones are made in in one of New Era's U.S. based plants. But really, most of the others, the fashion caps, the oddballs that have retro team logos or minor league team logos or you know just random brands on them, they're mostly made in China or or elsewhere. So it's kind of funny, you know, that's denim that came from one of the last American denim factories got shipped overseas and shipped back. And it's a very long supply chain when you think about it for some product that's so simple.
1: Yeah, it's true. And and I think, you know, you and I were talking about this off air, but it's we're seeing this across a number of supply chains and the automotive one comes to mind. And I think there was a great article in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was about a year ago when the current administration started rattling their saber about NAFTA and, you know, tariffs. And they just showed... That just for a simple seat, you know, seat casing and a seat, the seats of the car, how many times that product crosses the U.S.-Mexico border to assemble the seat? And you would think, like you said, you would just do that all in one factory. But no, because there's so many different suppliers or so many different touch points with regard to that seat, that it actually literally does cross the border a dozen times before it's actually finished. So I think what you said for the gene stuff is spot on. I guess a question for you, Matt, and sort of tapping into your love for the denim and for jeans, you know, when we look at the jean market today, it, you mentioned Levi's, that's a great use case and great example. But you look at today, I think there's hundreds of jean manufacturers out there or brands, right? Everybody, obviously, from the traditional Levi's and Lee jeans and Wrangler to the much higher end, you know, $500 pair of jeans that are out there to the the micro jeans, I guess, the sort of the, the smaller shops. Do you not think that the opportunity for some of these companies to tell that story does not help them be a voice above the crowd with all these
0: other gene companies out there? You know, I think in some ways it does. And in others, that kind of thing doesn't resonate. Certainly, there's a few brands out there that do a great job of getting behind it. And it works, but they tend to be smaller, more niche players. When you really hit that mass market, it's not so much about the stories as it is the price. Although if you go to a Gap, you'll see several different, you know, pricing points based on that particular gene. It might just be a standard Gap gene, which you know maybe thirty to fifty dollars, or it might be one made of Japanese selvedge that you know you can see the red line and it's a much higher quality denim. You know, even to the touch, and that might be eighty and a hundred dollars or more. And people will buy that. I think that there is some of the market that always wants the premium. And so you can play the different levels there. But otherwise, it takes kind of a fanboy or someone that kind of knows what they're looking at to get there.
1: Granted, I don't think we'll get to your level of understanding that the difference is a denim. It does seem like it's an opportunity for specific or for certain, you know, gene companies and manufacturers to differentiate themselves, just like, you know, from what you're saying, these baseball hats, you know, a Mets hat, a Mets hat, a Mets hat. But like we just talked about, there's a portion of the consuming audience that might be or is much more attracted to the history behind it, the uniqueness behind it, things like that. And I think for me, what's interesting behind all this is it's an opportunity for these brands to figure out, is that something they want to pursue from a differentiation standpoint? And if so, you know how do they leverage their supply chain their suppliers their knowledge of supply chain to really promote that and i think that's the part that's i believe we'll start seeing more of just because of the fact that like i said you know in denim jeans we have so many different you know rival companies trying to track get your attention to your point like no jeans 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 so why don't i just all go to old navy and buy them for 15 bucks right you know i certainly you know spend you know, a consider not considerable, but I do spend money on blue jeans because I have a certain brand I like, and I like the feel and you know the way their their style is. But it's certainly not just a pure commodity purchase from my standpoint.
0: Yeah, and. You know, I think that those brands that are telling a story or that are offering a premium product—I mean, that's going to change too. I mean, there are already some brands out there marketing this as like one of their last runs of Cone Mills denim, simply because it's something you won't get anymore, and that factory is now gone. And that was really kind of the last place to get raw salvaged denim in the United States—at least that I'm aware of—at such a, you know, to meet such a mass market need all of a sudden, not only is their story changing and that product kind of disappearing from the world, but it's also changing the entire supply chain. Now these brands are going to have to look for a new story to tell and new suppliers. And to be able to do so quickly without too much interruption to their business is going to be a challenge on the other side of the equation. Whereas us as consumers are are thinking about, you know, what makes this thing unique or special or, you know, fits their standards for quality. Now, all of a sudden, it's these brands that are, well, how can i source something that still quality product that you know maybe shortens the supply chain a little so i'm not shipping rolls of denim from the us to china back to the us or you know crossing multiple borders to get finished and really how do i bring this to a level that is the same as or better than the product that i was selling yesterday that i can no longer sell today
1: yeah and i think that's a that's a really interesting sort of the the other the flip side to this right so we just spent a lot of time talking about the the value of this stuff for the consumer, for us as consumers to be able to make choices and have, you know, have this, this unique product that we want to acquire. But you're absolutely right. I think we have to think about the backside of it, which is, you know, Hey, we have this, this cone mills, uh, you know, supplier that's going out of business that's gone. How fast can you switch suppliers? How fast can you Validate that the supplier you're going with has the same level of quality or meets your quality, you know, requirements for your product and your raw material. Do they have the capacity? Are they going to be? If you are concerned, you know, with sustainability, are they going to follow certain sustainability guidelines? I know that obviously we work a lot with Levi's around their waterless jeans projects, right? So to, to reduce the impact on the environment of producing jeans. But you know, if one of your suppliers doesn't follow a play along, then all your good efforts are sort of put out the window. So I think that's an interesting point, right? It's it's one of those things and we've seen it across the board. Uh, you know, when you think back to, I think it was the uh and I'm going to I'm going to butcher this, but the the nuclear meltdown in Japan the Fukushima Fukushima plant. Mm-hmm. There you go. You know, I know that there was a lot of uh, impact on supply chains in particular with Apple, right? Where I think one of their primary I think it was chip or memory manufacturers was located within you know the radius of that fallout, and they had to scramble to find a comparable supplier within a very short period of time, and make sure they're up to speed, get them, you know, ramped up, and, and obviously tie their systems together and figure out what's going on. So I think it's uh, it's something that you know that lesson carries over from this example, I think, to a lot of things we're seeing in the supply chain world where. In the end, you know, and and we keep saying this, but I think it's absolutely true. It's that, that importance of the supplier network and the greater network, because when things like this do happen, it's not as easy as flipping a switch and just saying, oh, well, like you said, I'm just going to go with this denim manufacturer, this, this raw material denim supplier, because it's denim is denim is denim. Well, you just showed that it's really not, right? There's obviously different characteristics, different distinctions. And then obviously, if you get into the more Sort of precise high-end denim like you purchase, you know, you're gonna want to have much more of a knowledge of where does this come from and, and things of that nature. So I think it's a it's a two-sided sword of this conversation where we're looking at the consumer side, but then we're looking at the supplier side as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely, I agree with you that you know, I mean, there's a huge human element to it, and you know, your buyers and the people in your procurement departments are gonna know their stuff. You know, I know a little bit about uh, some products like denim, but The people that are out there buying them and creating them certainly know well more than I do. So they'll have an idea of where the best factories are, where to source and things like that. But honestly, it it takes an ecosystem. and, And it's not just about the human element, but you do need to have the ability to be agile with your systems, with your finances, to be able to now suddenly... Onboard a new supplier or a new factory quickly and efficiently to be able to ensure that they hold up your standards. And so that is a big technological play. So I think that you're right. There's many layers to it. And I think for the brands that start to move beyond simply just that story, just telling the story and having a good product with, you know, a certain fabric or whatever, I mean, that's great. But what happens tomorrow when that's no longer there? That's when you do have to have that ecosystem in place, that network in place to be able to catch you when you fall and and find those advantages that help you continue to stand out with your product or even make your product that much better. There's always some potential, some new opportunity when one door closes. And I think this could be one of those cases where it's very sad to see this mill close, but hopefully it means that there are others that are going to come up and perhaps get the business model right and be sustainable for the long term.
1: Yeah. And I think it's obviously from a textile business in this area, I think we've seen a big transition. You know, I went to college in Worcester, Massachusetts, which used to be a massive textile industry location, just like Lowell and other parts. And, you know, you see what happens and it's tough, but they have to transition and they have to figure out themselves how to change, but then they have to figure out the suppliers or the companies that were there have to, you know, if they go out of business, someone else is going to come and fill their role and that's the nature of the beast, right? That's the nature of the business we're in. And I think it's across all industries. But I think it's, like you said, you know, one door closes, another opens. And it'll be interesting to see if if someone steps in and sort of takes the chance and to fill that gap for a Cone Mills. Because the reality is I, I think that we're moving, at least in my opinion, and I think the pendulum is moving away from just blindly, as consumers, just blindly purchasing products without thinking about you know, what goes into it and what's the history of it. It doesn't mean that we're gonna completely get rid of sort of low you know, low cost source locations like the Far East and and other locations like that. But I think there's gonna be a market carved out, you know, for people like you and myself that I think have a let's call a spade a spade, have a little bit of a snobbery to certain products and we're willing to spend the money on it. But we also want to understand and we take pleasure out of knowing, hey Like this baseball hat is made from, you know, last roll of denim from Cone Mills or, you know, these pair of jeans have a certain history behind them or what have you. And I think that's that's a really for retailers and supply chains. I think that's really exciting because it means that there's opportunities to differentiate and to target, you know, sort of micro targets or micro segments within the industry. And it's just not one size fits all. Right. We're not all just going to go. To the big box retailers and buy our jeans, you know, in standard boot cut, you know, acid wash, and just all wear them.
0: It's uh, quite a pair of jeans you on there, and yeah, you know, it's sad to see uh, see things change sometimes, and and certainly some of us hold on to them harder than others and want things to go the way they were. But I think there's always opportunity to move forward. Gee, uh, I think one thing I'll get from this at least is I will enjoy the baseball game. Win or lose, I've got a pretty cool hat to wear.
1: Well, you've got a pretty cool hat to wear, and I'm sure
0: you know people will be uh, probably more interested in your hat than the actual game on the field. That might, might be the case. This has been another episode of Supply Chain Radio. Gee, thanks again, as always, for joining me.
1: Matt, it's been a pleasure, and I guess I'd say go Mets, but I don't think <laughs> they know what to do with that.
0: No, it's, it's just not that year. Thanks for listening. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network.